Hello everyone and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Trisha Baldwin on with us today. She is the founder and CEO of 360 Physical Therapy and Aquatic Center. Trisha graduated with her BS in Physical Therapy from the University of Oklahoma in 1994 and opened her first private practice called Complete Approach in Tacoma, Washington in 1998. She then, in 2001, started 360 Physical Therapy and Aquatic Center in Chandler, Arizona, and 360 has since grown over the past 20 years to 15 locations in Arizona, as well as five locations in Oklahoma, and currently employs nearly 100 physical therapists. Trisha, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We're really excited to be able to talk to you and and learn about your entrepreneurship career and how you've been able to be so successful. Um, With that, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and give a little background on yourself? Uh, yeah, um, and a lot of the the basics as far as you know where we're at right now is in that intro, nice intro that you gave. Uh, I guess a little more on a personal note, I, I grew up in Oklahoma City. Um, grew up in a, a single parent home uh, with one older brother, and uh, ma- very modest upbringing. Uh, grew up in a 900 square foot house. I was the first of my family to graduate from college. And like you said, it was back in 94, it was a bachelor's program back then. And, uh, you know, since that time, I never felt a need to go further with my education as far as uh, being a physical therapist. Uh, But I was always somewhat of of a junkie when it came to continuing education after graduation. But I guess that's my personal background. Perfect. Thank you so much for that, for that introduction. Um, would you be able to kind of explain what motivated you to get into PT and why you chose that career path? Yeah, um, gosh, my first year and a half in school, I thought I was going for a mass communications degree. And at that time, my stepdad and my older brother were both going through physical therapy. And I had gone to a couple of appointments and started thinking about that as being a a different path for me. There was also, interestingly enough, a Time Magazine article that came out um, right about that time, I believe, that said it listed physical therapy as one of the top paid bachelor's degrees at the time. And, you know, I knew there was no way, even though, you know, I thought I could go to med school, there's no way I was going to give it all that time. And I thought, wow, this will really tap into my interest in science. And, and I really went into it thinking, gosh, if I get bored in a hospital, I can do outpatient. If I don't like that, I could do kids. If I don't like that, I can do athletes. So it really seemed like a, a choice that could evolve. And, and um, so, yeah, I switched and so ended up with a PT degree. There you go. That's a pretty big jump right there, but I'm sure like be able to communicate, especially now in entrepreneurship, that's a, a huge addition to have. And I kind of wanted to ask that, like what motivated you to become an entrepreneur? And could you share with us a little bit of those experiences that you've had so far? Yeah. And you know what, going back to what you just said, one of the things that's really worked to my advantage in having my own practice from a marketing standpoint is all the experience that I had. I was you know, like editor of my newspaper in, in high school But my ability to write content for ads and advertising and brochures and all of those things has been really helpful in private practice. So so it wasn't a waste of time, at least that experience. But um, as far as what motivated me to to open my own practice, um, I don't know. I look back as I was a kid, I was always, again, we didn't have much, very modest upbringing. And so, you know, if I wanted a new pair of skates, I had to uh, come up with half the money, right? That's how I was raised. And so, I mean, from cleaning my grandfather's ashtray and, and collecting dimes for that, you know, and then to mowing lawns, I, you know, mowed all the neighbor, you know, uh, most of the neighbor's lawns when I was a kid. And then I started working at Baskin Robbins when I was 
12 and I lied about my age to get the job. He found out later, but you know, I still got to keep my job. But um, so I always seem to be focused about, you know, making extra money, if you will. But I'll be honest, after I graduated PT school, I had zero interest in having my own practice, zero. Um, it, it, a light went on later, but, um, you know, I was just, I have friends that will quote me as saying, there's no way I'll ever do that. That's too much work, you know after getting through school and, and working most of the years in school, I just wanted to have my evenings to myself and not have to study. So for me, there were, you know, for the first you know, few years out of school, I had zero interest in, in doing that. Um, I went, how I ended up getting there actually was kind of, I hate to say it, but it was kind of for lazy reasons, if you will. It was, um, I worked at a hospital, then I moved to Colorado for a boy and got stuck working at a, a skilled nursing facility, um, followed that same boy to Washington State and uh, ended up going back into private practice. And back then you made about 50 grand a year, let's say, private practice, a few years out of school. And it was a small practice where I was forced to go out and go marketing. So it wasn't really a choice. There was only a few of us. And so I had to go out and do that. I had to do lunches. I had to understand the schedule. Um, I, you know, we didn't have somebody to do everything for us. I had, I even was working on my own insurance contracting. I understood reimbursement. So, you know, it was a really great experience. And then fast forward, my boss comes to me after a few years and says, Hey, uh, I'm going to shut down my practice and go develop electronic medical record, which back then nobody knew what that was. Like we were actually working in a DOS version on an amber screen of this documentation software he had been working on, but everybody else was pen and paper. So um, I'm like, all right, you're going to go do that. And so I started interviewing for jobs and I had been totally spoiled at this practice. It was one patient per hour. It was chronic pain. So we specialized in a, you know, it was a special population, but we were just treating one patient an hour. And, um, you know, we, we didn't have any techs. We didn't have any assistance. It was very small. Back then we were paid about 140 a visit. You know, that's compared to eighties is what we are paid these days. Um, so I'm out interviewing for jobs and everybody that I'm interviewing with an outpatient is saying, how many patients can you see an hour and how comfortable are you working with an assistant and a tech? And it was all about volume. And so I started crunching the numbers and I'm like, wow, at six patients a day, I can make about 800 bucks a day. And if I do that, that's like 200,000 a year. And then I have to just pay my bills for this small place. I can at least make 50 grand a year seeing six patients a day. And so that's where I say it was kind of that lazy thing of like, I liked knowing my patients' names. I liked knowing their dogs' names. I liked spending time with them. And I had been accustomed to providing that level of care and I didn't want to do it that way. And so it was more of a, I think I can do this and work less and make at least as much as what I'm, I'm making, you know, right now. So, you know, at that time I, didn't know how to fill out a business loan. The little place I went into was tiny. You know, it was just me and a patient. I didn't need a lot of equipment because it was mostly, I did a lot of manual therapy, home exercise program, you know, so I, I saved about 10 grand by that time. And then I charged up my credit cards and, you know, that's what I did. So I have no advice on how to fill out a business loan um, still to this day, but, um, but that's how I, I opened that first practice. And, uh, and that was in Washington state and then did that for a couple of years. It grew really fast and not even, yeah, maybe two years. And then uh, one of the therapists that worked for me bought it for a song and a dance. And I used that money to open in Arizona to open 360. And that's how I started 360 here. So. Perfect. Yeah. That's honestly, thank you so much for all that. That's a very interesting career path to get to where you're at. And yeah, to, to say that you were never going to be, entrepreneurs and how to be a very successful one is is really cool to see um could you explain to us a little bit so with 360 um a little bit of background um with this trash actually came while i was in my didactic portion at nau and presented to us a little bit about her clinic and her company and everything and and the uniqueness of it and i was wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of insight 
on what makes 360 so unique and why it was something that you created here and, and the market that you found here. Well, what makes us most unique at 360, aside from aquatics, that's a, that's a different, you know, even my first clinic didn't have a pool. We didn't add a pool for until uh, about two years in. But really what made us unique when I would go out and market is that at that time we were PT only. It wasn't until the last, say, six, seven years that we, um, maybe a little longer than that, that we hired our first assistant. So we were, you know, my competition in the market, if you will, was traditional, you know, back in the day, then traditional, uh, you know, one PT to two PT assistants plus techs with a, you know, a, a model of treating three to four patients an hour, um, you know, per provider, if you will. And so it was a real easy, uh, mar you know, it was really easy for me to market to the physicians because I would say, hey, it's PT only, you know, of course, at the beginning, it was just me, but <laughs> I was hiring people on actually pretty quickly. But that philosophy really would blow their minds because they were so used to kind of not good PT in the area that I opened in Chandler, which is where the first clinic was. And I had so many doctors that would actually want to talk business with me and say, how do you do that? And, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, well, you can definitely still make money doing it my way. That's low volumes. You know, those other guys are just, I guess, making more money than I am, but it's still very doable. We can provide quality care um, with this treatment model. And it really, that was the key. Um, to what, what made us different. And, and that's really the key today. I mean, we are known for that in the Arizona market. There are other clinics in our market that do it, do it right. You know, I call it, but we, as a company, you know, our therapists, they'll, you'll, I'll even hear them saying this, we make PT look good. You know, the patients that are exposed to our PT at 360 have a good story to tell when people are talking about, hey, you know, I went to physical therapy, how was your experience? There are so many patients that we meet every single day that have a bad story about PT, um, unfortunately. So we just feel like, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're doing it right. And, and, Luckily over 20 years, we're celebrating 20 years in Arizona this year. We have a reputation for that. We have a reputation for that with the students and the programs and, and with our patients and especially the numbers of patients that are repeat customers over the years. So, so that really is what makes us unique. Opening the first pool, when I opened in Chandler, the highway hadn't even come down to the mall, if you will. And, and fast forward, the mall's now out of date. But anyway, back then, um, within two years, I had four to five competitors open within about a three square mile radius. And so I started thinking, oh gosh, what do I need to do? It was a growing area, lots of new housing. And so I started investigating aquatics because no one was doing aquatics. And with my chronic pain background, it really meshed well because we weren't trying to compete with those practices that wanted to see all the athletes and have the, the relationships with the high schools and whatnot. You know, we were looking for that more complex patient and the pools complemented our ability to treat those patients effectively, so. Perfect, yeah, no, thank you for, for sharing those two things. Um, with that kind of how, what were some of the big challenges when you first decided to take on becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I think in, in the field of PT, there are challenges, you know, you can talk to other business owners that are in completely different businesses and we kind of all have the same general challenges, if you will. Um, when it comes to, you know, employees and legal and motivating people and, you know, all of those things, marketing, but PT has its own set of challenges um, because it's not like we're just making the best hamburger at a cool, really cool joint, in a good location, and people are going to come. You can provide the best PT ever. And if the doctors don't know you, patients aren't going to come. Our practice is still probably 85% physician referral. You know, it might not be that high because we have a lot of return patients because we've been around so long but it still is a lot of physician referral. And then the second thing is, uh, is the, uh, our insurance contracts. You know, you can't treat the patient if you can't get on the insurance plan. 
And I mean, I guess I would have to say that's probably the most difficult part of this business. And it's different state to state. It's very different. Um, in Arizona, we pay over $6,000 a year per clinic just to get access to being on certain plans. So you have middlemen that say you can't be on that big plan that you need to be on in order to function in Arizona, unless you're a member of our club and that's going to cost you six grand a year per clinic. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, a huge payer here. It took me nearly four years to get on that plan. And that was just being able to meet with the right person who might, I don't know, liked my hairdo that day. Like it just, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of, that's not fair, you know, that you experience in trying to just get on the insurance plans. Um, so I think that would be the, the, the biggest challenge, you know, and then the final is, you know, if I sell a hamburger, I get paid now with insurance. I don't get paid till later. Right. So I treat the patient today. I might get paid in two weeks or two months. And then our insurance companies are looking for, I make this sound like the most miserable job to have, but I love what I do, but anyway, but they look for any <laughs> excuse not to pay you. So, you know, they will make quote unquote mistakes. They will, they, they have a certain percentage denials that the reps have to deny. Cause I worked for an insurance company when I was in college, we had to deny 20% of everything that hit our desk. Um, so they'll deny for no reason. They'll say we didn't have auth, you know, they'll, they'll do a chart audit and see how good or bad the documentation is to decide whether or not it was medically necessary and then not pay you or take money back. So, you know, at the end of the day, you even get, there's difficulty, even if you're on the plan and you provided the service, just getting the insurance company to pay the bill. So, so those, those would be the challenges, I guess. There's yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, uh, that's, that's a, those are some big challenges right there. And I kind of wanted to talk about that. You said, for example, Blue Cross, Blue, Cross, Blue Shield, uh, why, like, what did you have to do or what did you find um, with those four years or the other ones? What were some of the things that you found that were challenging and some of the barriers that you were able to identify? And once you were able to overcome them, what were some of the things that you found more successful in overcoming those barriers? Because, yeah, that's something that I've learned that if you take on insurance in your company, in your clinic, that it's not just, oh, I want to provide care to these people. You have to get these, these companies on board. And what was so hard about that? And what did you find successful? Um, I mean, if we talk about Blue Cross Blue Shield in particular, you know, back in the day, I did feel like it was a good old boys network, right? The guys that had been in business here 10 years before me, they all had the contracts. And then when I would apply, they would just say, no, we don't need more people in your area. No, they don't. We don't need more people in your area. So, you know, in that sort of an instance, it could just be one person that has a you never know. They could have a relationship with one of your competitors, a friendship, and they're just blocking you out of the network. There's really nothing that you can, you know, do. I guess, you know, I just, we randomly got on Blue Cross Blue Shield after they got a new provider network person that finally, you know, gave us the time of day. So I think in that instance, I mean, we all run into those barriers and, you know, again, you just have to figure out where to put your energy. I couldn't focus all my energy just on that one thing that just wasn't fair. I was like, all right, well, we need to figure out other ways that we can get business until we can get this resolved. But, but um, the insurance is sometimes just the answer is no, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, right now with access, um, which is our state Medicaid program, it takes us six to nine months just to get a new provider credentialed. And we can't treat those patients until they come in. We literally have a clinic that can't accept that insurance because we can't get our new therapist credentialed. And the answer is just no, there's nowhere to go to. You know, the system's not exactly um, friendly, if you will. So um, I don't know if I ever really think, you know, I think you just, if it's something that you can't really affect, you got to put your energy somewhere else and figure, you know, figure out ways to do better in other areas. That makes sense. Yeah. And I guess another follow-up question from that is you mentioned the importance of finally get in, but then doesn't mean that you're going to get paid everything. What has been the importance of billing in your company and finding and being able to have like that, a good billing system to be able to provide, um, you, you are providing that care finally because you've been approved, but what is the importance of billing in a company to have that efficiency and getting treated, but also getting paid for that treatment? 
I mean, you have to have a good system in place, particularly with our size, right? So, you know, with our size, it is a dialed in system of number one, making sure that we have insurance verified before the patient comes through the door. We have authorization before they come through the door. Um, and so, you know, literally after we schedule that patient, it's somebody that verifies insurance for the insurance company. We have a whole department that all they do is authorizations. We have a verifications department an authorizations department. Um, and then as far as billing, we do outsource, but we have one person internally that oversees the, we call it our revenue cycle management department. So um, what's interesting is the person that runs that has worked for me for 18 years and she was the original person that did all of those things. So she was one of my first, she was actually my first clerical person that I hired. And so she's worn all of those hats. She used to be the one that did you know, scheduling, verification, authorization, you know, and, and so she knows every aspect of it. Thank, thank goodness. I still have Cheryl. She's, she's amazing. Um, so, but yeah, we have an outsourced billing department and we even have to stay on top of them. We can't assume that they're doing their jobs, even though we have it outsourced. Um, we did try and take it internally, which can save you a decent amount of money if you do it internally, but then you have a whole nother set of employees that you have to manage also. So there is a trade-off for that. Um, so outsourcing it works better, where it has continued to work better for us and, and paying the fees that we do on that seems to be a good trade-off. Um, Equally important to getting your billing right is that your documentation's right. Because that's that other piece, right? If an insurance company does an audit and say they audit 10 charts and you fail that audit on six of the charts where the therapist, you know, with these EMR systems, a therapist, if they're a really bad documenter, maybe they never changed the subjective. Maybe they didn't update the goals. Maybe they didn't update the repetitions. You know, they were seeing too many people and they just kind of are going through the motions with documentation. If you fail an audit more than, you know, depending on which type of audit it is, they actually come back in and take back money. And then they can extrapolate that, particularly Medicare can and say, well, if you're messing up and not really providing skilled care based on your documentation on these you know, 50 charts, then we're gonna assume that you did it on 25% of the business that you've had in the last year. So you have to be very, you know, internally, we have to stay on our therapist um, monthly chart audits uh, that we do, we do and, and constant education to ensure that our therapists are doing what they're supposed to do as far as documenting skilled care, because that has to come from them and what they bill has to match what they said they did in their note. Otherwise you look like you're doing something funny, you know, you're committing fraud or something. So, so it is a, you know, each of those are very important, if you will. Yeah, no, like right now I'm currently in a clinical rotation um, at a skilled nursing facility. And yeah, that's one of the big things that I, like my CI is, is stressed on is documentation and the importance of being very specific and having all of your documentation in line and in order because you don't want to have that issue, those issues. And that's something that at least for me, I felt like in PT school, you gain a little bit of knowledge on documentation, but going out to out into the real world, it's so important, so vital. And so it's been a, it's been a, like, this is my first full-time clinical rotation and it's been cool to see how important and like I'm obviously learning a ton with it but yeah documentation I've has been one of my biggest I think learning curves so far and making sure that it's spotless so that's one of the most important parts at least for my CI is what he's taught me I felt it's gonna be a valuable tool to have is the better you are at documentation the better you are at like I mean you're safer on the other side of it doing everything getting all of your ducks in a row um, and I just wanted to ask you another question um, one of the other things that you did with your company is that you partnered with a private equity investor. Um, could you explain to us a little bit about why you did that and then the pros and cons of such a decision? Yeah, I think when people hear, you know, if, if people have heard of private equity or have heard of friends that have had experiences there, 
you, uh, a lot of times people kind of cringe and they think of, oh, those are the people that like buy your company and then, you know, they're nice at first and then their head spins around and then they just want to squeeze as much money out of the business as possible after they get in. Um, fortunate for me, that has not been my experience. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, kind of how it, how it happened. I didn't, uh, list my company for sale. You know, I wasn't looking, um, to, to do anything at this point. I haven't hit 50 yet. So, you know, I, I just, uh, at that time I just was like, well, I'm not interested in selling, but I'll see what you guys have to say. And it's a small uh, private equity group um, out of California. And when they came in, they said, you know, basically you want to buy a portion of your company. You can remain in charge of it. Uh, we don't really know PT or do PT, but we're going to help you grow it by uh, giving you financial support, infrastructure support. We're going to bring a chairman of the board and other advisors. We're not going to change the name and we don't want to change how you do things. And, and I was thinking, okay, well, that's too good to be true. Let's figure out where this is going to really work. Um, but it was intriguing to me. And, um, and I remember, you know, working with, with this group and, and kind of, you know, asking my first questions and, and just saying, you know, questioning what, what, you know, where's the investment? And they said, well, we're investing in you. You clearly have built this already. We don't know PT. We just want to, you know, get in here with you and help, help move this forward. It was the best decision I could have made. I mean, there are some days it's like, wow, that was kind of, you know, I, I, I was able to take some chips off the table at that time. Um, if you will put some money in savings. Right. Um, so I think it was a good decision and fast forward everything that I have learned since that time. And, and that was back in 2015. Um, I have a much bigger vocabulary now. I have words like, you know, all my KPIs and my YOY and, you know, my financials. I understand how, you know, accrual financial, you know, accrual accounting and, you know, all the things that go into this now that you report to people when you're playing with their money, not just your money. Um, and it's been a great experience. I'm really thankful that I had these guys to work with also even through COVID because we reacted very quickly when we needed to. And, and I give that to the, the board of directors and the, and the team that I work with and us working together to go, what are we going to do? You know, and how, how do we keep, keep this thing afloat? Uh, and um, we actually came out the other end of COVID stronger than what we've ever been. Um, so... So yeah, I, I feel like it's been a success story and uh, I definitely don't regret it. But if somebody were thinking about doing that, I definitely could give them a long list of questions to ask and, and you know, to figure out who they're really, how I would put it, getting into bed with, you know, and, and, and uh, what their intentions are. But for me, it, it was a really good decision. That is awesome. No, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's the, like, the first time I, I've heard of it, like in, in other realms, but not in the PT realm. So thank you for sharing a little bit about your experience. And that's awesome that it was such a great one. Um, well, right now, I think it's important, you know, private equity money is, is being uh, injected into our field in so many different companies right now. And you may not see it on the surface because the names of those companies aren't changing, but uh, they're being invested in, if you will, and being sold and purchased. And, and so, so, um, so yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of investing from uh, large and small groups going on in our profession right now. It's a very active uh, acquisition market, if you will. There we go. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then with that, you also had the experience of acquiring another PT company in Oklahoma, because originally you were here in Arizona and then you acquired the one in Oklahoma. Could you explain to us a little bit about that experience and some of the things that you learned along the way with that? Yeah, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask that question and I had to think about it because, man, I can go down a rabbit hole with that one. Um, and I don't, and I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. And so I really tried to think about what my takeaways were. Um, that was a rough one. It, it was a rough one. You know, going into to that, it was... Um, you know, it was people that I thought I would, I, I was familiar with. And, um, you know, I, I guess my takeaways on it were, what would be, uh, 
when something doesn't feel right, you know, even if you're standing at the altar and you've already paid for everybody's meals, <laughs> you know, uh, it's okay to change your mind, right? And looking back on that, I saw a number of yellow flags and maybe even a few of them turning red that said, wait, maybe this isn't going to be a good, this isn't going to be a good, a good buy or a good merger. And, you know, as much as I depended on my board and the, the, the auditors that we had in place that, you know, all, you know, everything seemed okay, man, I wish I would have trusted my gut. There's so many times that, you know, your gut tells you what to do and you don't listen. And I, and I wish I, I would have, and I wish I would have been okay and comfortable and changing my mind, you know, as well. Uh, and then the other one, the other note that I, I wrote down here was if someone gets defensive, when you ask like just normal questions, they're probably lying. Right. So like the whole defensive thing, I should have, I should have known, you know, it, the, there's all those signs, but fast forward. I think that's the most important part. I love the team that I work with in Oklahoma. Now we've got some great leadership, you know, unfortunately we thought this was going to be a value add and it ended up being a rehab. Um, but we're moving in the right direction. We even pulled it through COVID because we have great people there. So I still learn a lot. You know, I, it's still, I, there still was a lot for me to take from it um, from a learning perspective and my team as well, my support management team. We all learned a lot from that experience because they were very much involved with it as well. But we also, you know, have learned to turn something around and, and we see it going in the right direction. That's great that you're able to learn from the experience, although it may have not gone exactly as planned or um, yeah, obviously it seems like you encountered road bumps along the way that you're able to make it such a, a good experience and a learning experience from that. So that's great. Um, and also with, with being in PT for so long, what is something that you've experienced? Like what is different in today's field of PT that maybe 20 years ago, like it hasn't really changed much or what has changed? What have you, have you viewed in that? Um. Gosh, I mean, when we look at, you know, you can look at from the business perspective, what has changed, you know, reimbursements is less, um, expenses are higher, you know, that, that's not a great business, you know, like we go back to the whole selling a hamburger, you know, if your cost to make the hamburger goes up, you raise prices. In physical therapy, we can't raise prices, we are stopped getting paid, and we haven't gotten a raise from Medicare in over 20 years, and Medicare sets the rates, you know, if everything's gone in the wrong direction for reimbursement. Um, I mean, those Why are, do you think that is? You know, and unfortunately, when we see reimbursement driving down, that force for leave drives up productivity and drives down quality. Now the providers are being expected to treat more patients with less, right? We haven't changed our productivity very much at all in the, in the, you know, the years. Ours are, you know, 50 visits a week for a 40 hour therapist, right? That's much below the, the industry standard, um, which I think covers closer to about 70, if you will. So, so we aren't driving that, that up, but I guess, you know, those are kind of the, the negatives, right? Of what's happened with our profession. I think, again, the positive goes back to, there's a lot of PT out there. We're starting to see it on every corner, right? So every year, more and more people know what physical therapy or they've experienced physical therapy, certainly more than, than 20 years ago. I thought it would be more mainstream than what it is. My dream is that there is that patients think of physical therapy like, a dentist appointment, right? You need to go to your yearly physical therapy check and we're going to do a musculoskeletal check on you. Um, we're not there yet. I wish we were. I think we're hindered by PT or by, excuse me, our PT is being hindered by our insurance companies. You know, we're after deductible um, in many cases, like they have easier access to a chiropractor than they do PT. If you look on the back of your, your cards, but I think if we could connect with those insurance companies better than what we've done as an association and as a profession to let them know how much money we would save them if we were getting these patients first. And we're seeing that gradually. It's just happening a lot slower than, than we would all like. I, I really like what you said right there about the, like assimilating it to a dentist appointment. Cause I feel like that's so important. Yeah. 
everyone in their mind understands the importance of going to a, a dentist appointment yearly to check up on your teeth, to go to PCP just for your like kind of physical every year. We have those things ingrained to into our mind, but PT is kind of this almost like luxury thing. I think only you need it when you are injured or you have these issues that are hindering your quality of life. But honestly, we can always assess and improve our quality of life. It doesn't have to be just when something's injured or something's affecting it. But I feel at least PT sometimes can be seen as, oh, this is a, my pain is getting so intolerable. I can't handle it anymore. I need to go into PT or find a different way. But if they were to be more proactive in, in checking on those things, just like a dentist, I think it'd be, it would have really raised our quality of view of PT. Cause that's something that you said earlier that sometimes people, oh, PT hasn't worked for me. And that could be the productivity issue as well. Maybe they've only used it when they're in dire, dire circumstances and it has been very beneficial because they've gotten to such a bad point. And so they could have done something earlier, but if they had addressed it, but sometimes they, they push it off to that point. And so I really liked that comment about what you said right there on that. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, unfortunately, you know, our, our lobbyists that work for the, you know, that, that, that work with the APTA, you know, they don't have a big budget. PTs don't give to the, our, our lobbyist efforts, right? We're, we're, we, we just don't. Um, and it's very hard to raise money um, from a professional standpoint to lobby to those insurance companies that will change their procedures, right? It's, it really has come down to, you know, if we could get the insurance companies on our side and if they could really get through all the red tape and understand how much money we would actually save them, if they would just put on that back of the card, please see your physical therapist once a year for preventative maintenance of your body, right? It, it would change so much. But, you know, as physical therapists, we train our therapists on discharge talk to your patients about coming back for that checkup, you know, talk to them about cash pay access, talk to them, you know, and so that, and t- we do have that philosophy. It's called, you know, my 360 PT and we give them a flyer and we're like, you can reach out to us directly. You don't have to have a doctor's order, you know? And so we try and educate, you know, the 20,000 people we touch a year, but if we're going to change the American mindset of thinking about PT as preventative and a yearly thing, we would have to have the marketing budget of Coca-Cola, right? I mean, it's, it's really, hopefully we can just make little changes as we go. And I think the more practices that are providing great care is going to help us. Those ones that are providing, you know, everybody knows what I mean by bad care, tech-driven care you know, never seeing your PT, nothing hands-on, you know, those things, the more clinics that are out there and that are being supported by people working for those clinics, it's just making us all look bad and it's holding back our whole profession. And so, um, yeah, don't get me on my soapbox on that, but. (laughs) You're good. No, thanks for sharing (laughs) your feel and and what what you've experienced. So yeah. Um, Another question I had is throughout this whole process, you've obviously been very successful with everything. Um, but through that, did you have a mentor to be able to help you throughout your career? Did you have mentors? Um, and what has that been the importance of in your career, um, whether it be in the actual physical therapy career or in the entrepreneur side of your career? What are some things that you've applied throughout your career because of what they've taught you? Um, for most of, of my you know, first 10 years in private practice, even, I wouldn't be able to identify, say, a person that I was able to go to for um, advice. You know, if I would have been able to, it would have been my grandfather, but um, but I wasn't able to do that because uh, he was no longer with us. But um, I really didn't have that person. I thought about this question, um, but fortunate that those two people came into my life about nine years ago, and and. Um, have really uh, made a real positive difference in my ability to take my company from a small company to a more medium-sized company, if you will. Um, and that would be my neighbors, uh, Susie and John. So right across the street from where I live, Susie is the former VP of Estee Lauder. John is the former president of Honeywell, right? So the ultimate power couple. Um, John just turned yeah, 83. Yeah, 83 last month. And um, as we became friends, 
I, I learned that they were a wealth of knowledge, like a, any problem, particularly, you know, they, they managed large teams of people in different professions. And um, man, when I would ask a question, they'd be like, okay, come over tomorrow at two. And they would literally have a lesson plan or uh, this is how, you know, anything from like dealing with a difficult person or, you know, to, to, I mean, just anything. And the best advice that John gave me, and it would have been about three years ago, three, four years ago, was, you know, I was like, man, I really need to get productivity going, you know, that we've got 90% of our therapists not even meeting minimum productivity standards. And I don't know how to do it. You know, we're just asking him at that time, it was like 45 visits, uh, you know, 45 visits a week. And, you know, we couldn't get the people there. And I remember John looking at me and saying, what's your culture at work? And I was like, culture? I, I don't even know what you mean. What do you mean by culture? You know, and I couldn't even define it. And he's like, well, there's your problem. And he took it back to his experience of, you know, going into a, a new place with a new team and a new state that he had to motivate. He would figure out their culture and what was lacking. And he's like, doesn't matter what you think it should be. You need to figure out where your employees are at. Where does your culture exist? Where do you want to get it to? This wasn't a um, easy process. It wasn't something you did in a week. It was taking surveys. It was rewriting our mission statement. It was a good year and a half and then still work every month. Every month we work on it. So, so and, and really my takeaway, I guess, and I'm sorry if it's taking me a long time to get there, but um, if you have your culture dialed in and people believe in what you're doing and what direction you're going, you know, the whole, we make PT look good that came out of that. Um, if people who work with you believe that your metrics will fix themselves, people will be productive. They will be happy. They will, you know, they will spread that to people around them. They will do a good job. And so really learning that key thing of, of defining our culture and then figuring out how to get it where we wanted it so that people have that belief in the company and you know, it, everything else gets taken care of. The bills get paid and, and people do what they're supposed to do. So that's good. Actually, as you were sharing that, like it totally flashed me back to when you presented at our at our school. Like that was one of the big things that I remember, like that creating a culture was so important and that you found it as a big kind of stepping stone and being and making that productivity and making that next step and becoming more successful. And so, yeah, thank you for sharing that right there. Um, another question, too, I just want to don't want to overstep my time and everything with you. But I just wanted to ask you, being a successful entrepreneur, did you experience any specific challenges because you were a woman um, and what advice would you give to other women who aspire to be like you and be successful entrepreneurs in the field? Um, I like this question. <laughs> uh, I like to have the opportunity to answer it because, you know, the short answer is, is that my gender has nothing to do with my success or the lack of my success, you know, um, I'm not saying that over the years I haven't, you know, felt like somebody blew me off because I was a, a woman or, you know, even when I first opened my practice in Chandler and I walked next door to try and get insurance on my business, right? I needed to have insurance within the first, you know, 30 days of signing the lease or something. And this guy totally blew me off, right? You know, I came in, I was probably, I think, 28, 29 years old. I was probably in sweatpants, right? Because we were trying to do the build out next door. And then, so I went a little further down the street and gave that guy my business. And today that guy has the business on, you know, my house, my business, all my clinics, my motorcycle, my, you know, my, <laughs> so like he has all of my, my business, you know, good investment. Um, so I guess that's kind of the story of, you know, if somebody gives you that type of a barrier, I've kind of always hit it with that, that attitude of, oh yeah, I'll show you. You know, I feel like when you run into those barriers, you know, you figure out how to maneuver around them or how to overcome them. I think that it makes us stronger um, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I, I know enough people and I've had enough people that work have worked for me as well. Um, 
And, you know, over the years, you know, currently we employ about 150 people. So there's probably another, I think I hate what the numbers are 400 over the years. And there's a lot of people out there that just go through life that constantly just see unfairness, right? Well, that's unfair. That's unfair. You know, well, I can't do this because that, you know, because of that barrier. And so I think because of that, they always attract it. You know, those are the, the, you know, I hate to use the word victim, but if everything's always unfair, then it's always going to be unfair. And that's all they can focus on. They're not able to focus. They're, they're focusing on other people instead of finding that path to success. And um, I really think it comes down to, you know, your attitude and, and not seeing something as a barrier, but more, you know, a challenge. And, and, um, and that's the attitude I've always had with that. I love that. Yeah, that is. And I feel like that's such a great answer for somebody that, especially as, as become an entrepreneur, that you're going to, like, no matter your gender or whatever you have, your background, you're going to have barriers or obstacles. And it's, it's the, it can either be like how I've always like a quote that I heard is that it can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. And it's all, it all, what matters is the height of your step. And, and I love that because if it makes at least for me feel like, okay, I'm in control of, of the situation and my height of my step will determine if that specific situation or obstacle is going to be a stepping stone that I will progress on and, and learn from or stumble upon and kind of, you know, like if I, if I stumble, am I going to get back up? Am I going to learn from it? And so that's, that's great. I really liked that, that answer for that was really, really good. Um, is there I, like, any other... I like your stepping stone analogy. I hadn't heard that one. I like that. Yeah, it was, I, I remember hearing it a long time ago. Oh, I forget where it was at, maybe like a church camp or something that I was at. And it was just, I, it just really like stuck with me kind of, yeah. Cause it's everything in life you can either grow from or, or I feel like I yeah, kind of get caught up in it. And so I don't know. I, I love that because the height of your step, but part of it just really rung true to me. Cause when you have that, when you know that you're in control, that yes, other factors may be in play, but you have that you, in the end, you can still have a say in it that really just gives that motivating and kind of empowerment to yourself. And that's what I, I've I kind of stuck with today and like throughout my life so far. Um, but is there any additional information or advice that you'd like to share with us? You've, you've given us a lot of content already, but is there any other additional information that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, um, I think kind of going off the conversation that we just had, um, you know, about barriers or stepping stones, if you will. Um, and this is kind of fresh because we were having a conflict between some employees that I stepped into to try and resolve and, you know, got everybody together to discuss it. And I really think it's great advice. And it's something that I had to learn myself, even in the last couple of years, if you will. So it's not something I've had with myself or, you know, it hasn't been my mantra or anything is that when you have conflict with another person, trying to look at it from a perspective of what is their intent, right? So we had two people that were having conflict. And I basically said, you are loyal and love working for this company. You love working for 360. We all have the same goal. Why then are you assuming that you are each sabotaging the other, right? And I, I don't know if it's coming out just right, but you know, it's even better to, to Linda, who's my second in charge. And when she first came to work for me, I was like, man, why did she correct me in front of the group? Is she trying to make me look bad? Is she trying to make herself look smarter than me? Right. So I'm trying to share my, you know, I'm trying to delegate and I'm trying to, you know, take things off my plate. And I, I keep thinking of her as being this threat to me. Right. And, and that was where I had to learn it. And actually my mentor helped me really realize this. And they're like, your problem's not with Linda, your problem's with you, right? She's just trying to help, you know? She wasn't trying to correct you to make you look bad. She was just trying to make you look good and make sure you had the right number, right? Why did you interpret it as her correcting you in front of the group to make you look bad, right? So I think a lot of times when we go into conflicts with other people, I do, you know, in much of my experience, it's really coming from, okay, reevaluate what that person's intent is, you know, are they really trying to hurt you or make you look, look bad? Or is that just your interpretation? And, and 
open communication and, you know, talking to somebody when you're feeling that way can really clear the air really quickly and not let those types of things build. But a lot of times it just takes your own self-reflection to be like, what's their intention, right? Um, and if they really are trying to hurt you, then get rid of them, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> most of the time, I don't think that's the case, right? We're all good people and, and we all want to have a good day at work and, and you know, we all want to have success and, and not have mistakes and we all want to look good. And most of us don't want to look good by making someone else look bad. So yeah, look well, that's... yeah, I guess look for intentions is the message. That's perfect. Yeah, I feel, especially I, I think anybody that gets into the physical therapy industry, we're here to help people. We're here. We're not here to kind of become super successful and, and all about us. We're here in a profession that's constantly giving and providing. And I feel like that, especially most people, I feel like in our industry, at least from what I've, in my very, very limited knowledge, obviously experiences are here to, to give and not to figure out what they're going to get. And so to be able to understand intentions, I feel like is a really important thing because probably just having a misinterpretation or miscommunication, which I'm sure happens a lot, especially being in, in the upper management realm, you have to deal with that a lot and understanding where that miscommunication and the interpretation of intentions went wrong. So that's great. Thank you for that. Um, if anyone is interested in talking with you and getting some more information and talking with you about things that you've shared, what would be a good way to go about doing that? Um, I mean, email is probably the best. Sometimes I'm not uh, as, sometimes it gets pushed down really far. So if somebody, if I don't respond within a couple of days, shoot me an email again. But, uh, but yeah, email is probably, probably the best way. And should I give my email address right now? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, my first name, Tresha, T-R-E-S-H-A dot Baldwin, B-A-L-D-W-I-N at 360physicaltherapy.com. So it's 360physicaltherapy.com. Sorry, it's a long one. But, uh, That's all good. Thank you so much. And yeah, again, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for coming on. I hope our audience um, was able to gain and, and get so much information out of this, this episode. This was really cool. I learned a ton about so many different aspects of PT, especially the business side that were so unique to your situation. And I'm grateful that I was able to learn a lot. And I hope everyone out here that's listening is able to learn a lot as well. So thank you, Trisha, for coming on. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks. All right. Well, have a good one. You too. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.